turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59 as we continue to work through the book of Isaiah. We will not be in Isaiah much longer as you can see we're nearing the end. We've uh, talked about it as a session and decided that we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians after this so I strongly encourage you not to not let's not stray away from Isaiah yet but this you can begin preparing yourself for that as well as we'll be in the book of Galatians and it'll probably be I don't know how long it'll be honestly I've never preached through Galatians so but I would imagine probably six months or so and so um, before we come to Isaiah 59 let's um, go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us with it let's pray (coughs) Lord Jesus as we come to your holy word Pray that you would help us, because we are very easily confused, even though we have your word here before us, it is readily accessible in many different ways and forms. We've heard it, many of us, for years and years and years, and we know the truth therein, but yet we are so easily persuaded by the false hope of the world. And so, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would help us, that you would be here with us, that you would convince us over and over of the true hope that we have alone in you, and that you would show us that hope today from this text. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I read through Isaiah 59 kind of made me reflect over the last several years uh, that we've had together, almost two years now, dealing with the COVID pandemic in one form or another. And it's made me reflect also about how the church and our country in particular has experienced quite a bit of change over the last couple of years. This COVID pandemic has made us think through things a lot differently, made us think about things differently, and in many ways the church has been exposed as struggling in that context. And as people do, there are many who want to talk about with what's well what's wrong with the church then. And they always tend to do it from a well this is what's wrong with you people mentality. They usually create some straw man that doesn't actually exist, then they knock it down with their proposed solution if we just listen to this guy behind uh, the Facebook curtain, that perhaps we would all be better. Yet, as you read their words, there's no hint of repentance or remorse, not a shred of lament for their own part in that struggle. And so as we get into Isaiah 59, we've been dealing with the sin of Israel over the last few weeks in this, in this book. And here, the Lord is going to show them their sin very plainly. He's going to just set it right out in front of them. And rather than point fingers, well, it's these people here, or it's these people here, or this is what we need to do, Israel replies with a genuine lament for their sins. Laments are used in Scripture to express the sorrow, usually of a whole nation or a whole big group, 
to ask for the intervention of God in that situation, in, in that sorrow. And many of the laments of Scripture are recorded throughout the Psalms. And then, of course, there's just a whole book of, that's a lament. It's called Lamentations, which I guess that's a good name for a book that's a lament. And as Israel comes face to face with their own sin, they come face to face also with the justice then that is due to them. And then many times I think this is what is missing in our own thinking. In order for justice to be made manifest, what has to happen for that to occur? Throughout redemptive history, there's been a longing for justice. And, that, and we know in Christ that that was finally settled in him. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. As we consider this, let us examine our own hearts. The justice that is found in Christ alone Consider three main ideas, the sin exposed, the lament expressed, and then finally the Messiah awoke. And so with that, look with me at the text, Isaiah chapter 59 in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 59, starting at verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing, men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands." Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart's lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and the uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered 
that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and the glory of the rising sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So going back a few chapters, we've been dealing with the specific sins of the people. We've dealt with their paganism in 57 their insincere religious devotion in 58 as we dealt with their insincere fasting, if you remember that. And there's always been this, there's always been this kind of common thread throughout. This common thread throughout the book of Isaiah, and we see it here in this passage today, and that is the theme of injustice. The justice that is needed and the injustice that the people of God are doing. Something has been made wrong that needs to be made right, and the people are so deep in their sin that they can't even see their sin any longer. And it's not that they've forgotten sin. It's not that they've forgotten that at all. It's just that they only see maybe the sin of other people, and they start kind of pointing fingers, that self-righteous person pointing fingers. Have they forgotten their own sin and only see the sins of others? There are lots and lots of directions that we can go with this as we read through this chapter. Lots of things that we could park on and really tease out. But I want to keep the focus, as always, on our own need of a Savior. Because that will help us to see the needs of the lost world a lot more clearly when we focus on Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the first point, the sins exposed. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Notice how the Lord addresses his people, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between your you and your God. This setup of this chapter is really important because it helps us to see the intent of the Lord. It's not that he's incapable of saving and he cannot hear their cries for mercy. It's not as if we have a God who's unable to do something that wants to, but he's unable. The separation between the Lord and his people is due to their own iniquity. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, is what the text tells us. This puts the blame square on the people of God. Now, it's God who decides how he's going to respond to anything. But here's where we're given a clear understanding of the Lord's thinking on this. He sees the sin of the people, and he's choosing not to deal with them. He continues through the next several verses to outline exactly what's going on. 
And without reading that whole thing again, just look at the highlights of their sin. Look at the types of sins that are there. Hands defiled with blood. Lips spoken lies. No one goes to the law honestly. There's a part about the people making spider webs to trap people or to poison them. Their feet run to evil, swift to shed innocent blood. The way of peace they do not know. Paul quotes verse 7 actually in Romans chapter 3. And we, Romans chapter 3, that, that section of Romans 3 is widely known as one of the best treatments of human depravity in all of Scripture. And Paul quotes from Isaiah 59 to draw from that. You know, it says, as Genesis 6-5 says, says, Every intent of the heart was only evil continually. You get that impression as you read through these first several verses here in Isaiah 59. And notice the nature of their sins. They're all against others. They're sins that are committed against another person in one way or another. Murder and dishonesty aren't what we would call private sins. They always involve someone else. So they aren't just against God. But they're against his image bearers also. And so when he says in verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, there is no justice in their paths, that they have made their ways crooked. He's speaking of the injustice that they have done against others. And if you think about that, they have made their ways crooked. How many times in Isaiah to this point have we read that God is making straight a highway in the desert? And here they are making their own ways crooked. It's a stark contrast for the highway that was made in the wilderness for the people of God to come back to Jerusalem. Every obstacle was removed. Every mountain made low. Every valley lifted up, as we read in Isaiah 40. And so here, the people, what they're doing, essentially is they're replacing those obstacles with their own sin. So it's no wonder, then, that God would not visit them in their iniquity. And understand this, it's not that God was hindered by their sin at all. He simply chose not to deal with them in their sin. We don't worship a God that's hindered by anything. He chose not to visit them in their sin. This was happening in Isaiah's time. It happened in Jesus' day as well as he preached against the religious sect as he preached against the religious leadership of the people. And if you remember those words that he said to them as he preached to the Pharisees, what did he say to them? He says, how, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus wasn't hindered by their resistance. He's not hindered by anything. There are way too many other scriptures that suggest that God does as he pleases when it comes to the hearts of men and women. Even in our text today, we see that. But Jesus chose not to deal with the leadership, but rather, what did he say he was going to do? He was going to go out to the highways and to the hedges to call the people to himself. And that's exactly what he did. We have to understand, church, that things aren't much different today. We are still a people who don't have to look very far to discover why it seems like the church is faltering in our country today. 
We can point fingers all around. We can point to how other churches do things. Well, it's because those churches are doing this sort of thing, and that's what's really causing the trouble. It's because of this sort of mentality that began in this certain decade, and that's why the church is really struggling today. We can point at Washington, or we can point at Lexington, and say it's, it's those people. We could just get rid of those people, and the church would do so much better. We can point at the culture and say, look how much the culture has changed. That's why the church is really struggling. struggling. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden... We'll do anything but look at our own hearts to find the real problem. What should follow from each of us is a real long, hard look at our own hearts rather than looking around and comparing ourselves to other sinners. We need to compare ourselves and look at what God requires. And every single time, brothers and sisters, when we look at the Word and we see what God requires, we're going to find ourselves falling short. And that's where we need to start. And what we do with that information, what we do with the fact that I know that I'm falling short of what God requires of me, what I do with that is very important because if I stop there, if I stop at my sin, then I just become a kind of navel-gazer, always talking about how bad we are. Hoping others will disagree with us so then we can actually kind of look better. I'm so bad. No, you're not. Thanks. We love that sort of thing. We eat it up. No, the key here is repentance, which has been a near constant theme in the latter half of this book, as it should be, if you know the historical context. And what we see from the people of God is just that in the following verses. That brings me to the next point, a lament expressed. Look with me at the first part of chapter 9, or verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. So God presents the sins of the people to the people in the first eight verses. He does that. And in verse 9, you have kind of a voice change, and it's the people talking about themselves. And the conclusion of their sin is because of their sin, therefore, justice is far from us. The deliverance that God has promised them is still far off. While the exiled people, remember at this point in the book of Isaiah, the people of God have been, they've come home from exile in Babylon. While the exiled people might be back home, they are still in desperate need of a Savior. And if they will just wait a bit, They'll just wait around another hundred years or so. There's going to be some more conquerors come in. It's not as if that's going to stop for these people. The Greeks are going to come. They'll drive the Greeks out. Well, with the help of the Romans, of course. That's who's going to help them get rid of the Greeks. But then who's going to suppress them then? The Romans. And so they're never going to get rid of this. There's going to be no shortage of external conquerors for this people. But they, the people of God, were the real problem. The problem came from within, and now justice is far from them. This is evidenced by, if you look at verse 10, this, this groping around. We, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as if in the twilight. When the justice of God is absent, there's nothing but darkness and chaos. They're even making animal noises. You know, it says that they're growling like bears and moaning like doves. I guess I never would have thought of doves moaning, but it must have been pretty bad. It's a hard thing 
for the people to look at themselves and to see these things in themselves. So here, what we have is a rare introspective for the people of Israel. It's not rare for Israel to lament about things at all. You just read through scripture, they're constantly crying about needing the Lord to save them. But it's usually because they put themselves in a situation and they're wanting the Lord to save them anyway. But here we have a correct assessment from them concerning their own sin. This, brothers and sisters in Christ, that correct assessment of one's own sin is the first step in real repentance. Owning up to the depth of your own sin. The Westminster Larger Catechism says this about repentance. And just just listen to the fullness of these words. If you've ever tried to read through the uh, Confession of Faith and the Larger Catechism in particular, you know that the words are very, uh, very full. And so I love their definition of repentance here. This is Westminster uh, Larger Catechism number 76. It says this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, so where does repentance come from the Lord first, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness, I love these words, of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins, as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to work with him in all, his, in all the ways of new obedience. In this passage, you, you feel that this is happening. They're not simply acknowledging their sin. Yes, I'm a sinner. But they're understanding the effects that it has on others. They see that there is injustice happening. And what do they do? They say, we hope for justice. But they don't see it. They want that, but they can't see it. This understanding of how it affects others, how, how God sees their sin is absolutely abhorrent. And they're coming to that conclusion. This is what we need brothers and sisters in Christ. We need lament. And again, this isn't a finger-pointing thing. You know, we're, yeah, you guys should feel sorrier for your sins. That's you, you all. This is an inward look at our own situation. You know, verse 14, I think, is a great picture of this. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil has made himself a prey. And we look at our own public square today and we see that the truth has stumbled. The truth is lacking. And so many times what we do is we blame society. Well, people just don't, people just don't like the truth anymore. Why? Why is that? Of course our society is going to lack truth. What did Paul say about him as he quoted from the rest of scriptures? Their, their throat is an open grave. Are we wanting truth from, from the culture? Are we wanting truth from society? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Are we blaming them for being lost in their sins? 
If the church wants to know why truth is no longer in the public square, it needs to go in the mirror and ask that question. And lament is the first part of that. There should be a turning after that. And we turn from that sin, just like the the catechism says, upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. And what we see that we see his perfect mercy in the following verses. And that brings me to the next point. The Messiah awoke. Look with me at the second part of 15 and the first part of 16. This is the Lord's answer to the lament of the people. He says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There's this moment. There's this moment where the Lord is wondering who's going to save his people. And, and of course, this is an accommodation for us who, are, who have finite minds because obviously God knew his own plans. He knew, his, he knew the people for himself, as, as uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians, from the foundations of the earth. It's not as if God is just now figuring out, oh, they're sorry for their sins. Well, maybe I should do something different here. It's not as if he's making new plans here. He obviously knows what he's going to do. Yet this, the writer is building this kind of tension. As God looks around and he sees that no one is capable of saving this wayward people. They couldn't save themselves, of course. Even in this repentant state, even in this sad, lamented state, they're unable to save themselves because being, just being sad about your sins doesn't save you. You still need a Savior. This underlines the fact, again, that someone can feel sorry for their sin all day. But if they're, if they're still convinced that they're the answer to that, they're still lost. There's only one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. And God, as he looks about for this Savior, he comes to the exact same conclusion. And wondered that there was no one to intercede, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on the righteousness as the breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He stretches out his own hand to save his people. His own righteousness will stand in place of the sins of his people. And notice... He's not going about this idly. He's not walking in the garden in the cool of the day right here. He's girding himself for battle. Because in order to save a wayward people, he has to go to battle against their enemies. And those enemies are as old as the garden. They're as old as people themselves. They are the age-old enemies of sin and death. And this answers the prophecy of the garden. That though the snake would bruise his heel, he would ultimately have he would ultimately crush the head of the one who would come and become a and the one who would come would crush the head of the serpent and be a blessing for all the nations. The image here should shock us a bit because we see 
we should see that God will stop at nothing to deliver his covenant people. He's, he's putting on his armor to go out and fight for his people, and he did just that. This isn't the fight that we hoped that we'd see, right? This isn't the fight that the people of Israel hoped that they would see. They hoped that their conqueror would ride in and drive out Rome. He defeated his enemies by becoming like us. He defeated his enemies by suffering death on the cross. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. But that fight, even though it took this whole different form that we never would have guessed ourselves, had the same effect. Verse 19, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, and the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Though they didn't fear Jesus in his first coming, they will fear him when he comes again, one way or another. This prophecy from Isaiah is a kind of already not yet. Paul quotes from it several times in Romans chapter 11. Jesus has come. He has defeated his enemies once and for all, yet he is coming again. And when he comes again, brothers and sisters in Christ, there will be none to deliver Isaiah repeats the message, the message of Jesus. A redeemer will come to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. What was Jesus' message as he began his ministry? What, what should they do? What should they do? They should repent and believe. And this has always been the message. He will, write, he will write his law on their heart. He will put their words in their mouth. We see that here at the end of Isaiah 59. He will have a people for himself. He will call them to himself and they will listen. And so the question for you then here this morning, are you hearing that call from the Lord? If that's the first time, if so, call out and be saved. He is faithful to, give those, to forgive those who ask. His death covers the sins of the world. That means you believe in him and be saved today. But for those who are already in him, for the Christians here, this message is for us too. This is the same message that we have every week. We don't stop needing Jesus. We're not going to get to the point where we're like, finally, I can do this on my own. We're never going to get there. We can't even hardly take a step without messing up. We need him. And any time we think that we don't need him anymore, that's when we start to wander off into crazy. The people of Israel were characterized by injustice. Yet God reached out his own hand and saved them anyway. It's just like us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is our response then? What is our response as we continue to deal with the own, our own injustice? Repent. Do justice. Love mercy. Purpose and endeavor to walk with him in, in your ways. And in conclusion, this is the sum of our life here, brothers and sisters in Christ. Seeing our sin, turning from it, turning to him, resting in him. It doesn't stop just because we believe. If anything, we should do it all the more. Let us lead in repentance. and Let us show the goodness and mercy 
of a good God to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as ones who need your mercy. Not because we've just sinned a little bit and we need a little help, but because we are as bad as we could be without you. We need you completely. There's not a bit of us that is worth saving. But you did it anyway. And for that we are thankful. Lord, help us. Teach us to repent. Teach us to walk in your ways that we would not depart from them. And teach us to preach your name to a lost world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.